Welcome to the July 13th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, can some patients with relapsed or refractory primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma be cured by checkpoint blockade alone? In a phase two study, pembrolizumab has provided sustained anti-tumor activity with all complete responses maintained after approximately four years of follow-up. Up next, autologous CAR T-cells are highly effective, yet not always feasible in children with relapsed or refractory B-cell precursor acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Can donor-derived CAR T-cells overcome the hurdles? Investigators report that in their experience, allogeneic CD19 CAR T-cells are effective in highly refractory patients with no increase in toxicity. And finally, ironing out beta thalassemia during pregnancy. New research in a mouse model provides new insights into maternal and fetal iron homeostasis. These findings set the stage for further research that could inform management approaches for a growing number of women of reproductive age who have this blood disorder. Our first research article is Pembrolizumab in Relapsed or Refractory Primary Mediastinal Large B-Cell Lymphoma, Final Analysis of Keynote 170. The first author is Pierluigi Zanzani with the University of Bologna in Italy. Primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, or PMBCL, is a rare and aggressive malignancy predominantly seen in younger women. Although morphologically similar to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, Genomic studies have shown that PMBCL aligns more closely with classical Hodgkin lymphoma. In particular, PMBCL demonstrates frequent amplification or translocation events at 9P24.1. This results in overexpression of programmed DEF ligand 1 and programmed DEF ligand 2, or PDL1 and PDL2. Expression of these ligands is thought to result in a highly immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment. These molecular characteristics provide a strong rationale for evaluating immune checkpoint inhibitors. The initial trials of the PD-1 inhibitors pembrolizumab and nivolumab in PMBCL were highly encouraging. Pembrolizumab was evaluated in a phase 1b trial including patients with relapsed or refractory PMBCL. The overall response rate, or ORR, was 41%, with mainly grade 1 to 2 adverse events and no toxicity-related treatment discontinuations. The Phase 2 Keynote 170 trial also evaluated pembrolizumab in relapsed or refractory PMBCL. The ORR in Keynote 170 was 45%, including 13% complete response, or CR. The median duration of response was not reached, but the median follow-up was fairly short at just 12.5 months. And based on Keynote 170 data, pembrolizumab was approved by the FDA for treatment of patients with PMBCL who have relapsed after two or more lines of therapy. Nivolumab also has relevant Phase two data in relapsed or refractory PMBCL, but in combination with brentuximab-vidotin, the anti-CD30 antibody drug conjugate. In a Phase two trial, nivolumab plus brentuximab-vidotin had an acceptable safety profile with encouraging anti-tumor activity. The ORR was 73% and CR was 37%, and the median duration of response was not reached after a median follow-up of 11.1 months. Those results are intriguing, given that brentuximab-vidotin has limited activity as a single agent in PMBCL. 
Now back to Pembrolizumab and the final results of the Phase 2 Keynote 170 trial. The median follow-up in this report is 48.7 months, or about 4 years. A total of 53 patients were enrolled and received pembrolizumab 200 mg every 3 weeks for up to 35 cycles, or about 2 years. They were heavily pretreated with a median of 3 prior therapies. About a third had primary refractory disease. The ORR in the final analysis was 41.5%, including CR in 20.8% and partial response, or PR, in 20.8%. Median duration of response was not reached. Of note, none of the patients who achieved CR had disease progression at the time of the data cutoff. In post hoc analysis, patients with primary refractory disease had an inferior outcome with an ORR of just 25% and no CRs. The median progression-free survival was 4.3 months, and the four-year progression-free survival rate was 33%. The median overall survival was 22.3 months, with a four-year overall survival rate of 45.3%. About half of the patients had treatment-related adverse events, most commonly neutropenia in 18.9%, asthenia in 9.4%, and hypothyroidism in 7.5%. About a quarter of patients had grade 3 or 4 treatment-related adverse events. There were no grade 5 adverse events. Six patients experienced a total of nine immune-mediated adverse events. The only grade 3 or 4 immune-mediated adverse event was a grade 4 pneumonitis. In a commentary, Lisa Giolini-Roth of Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City asks whether pembrolizumab can go the distance. She said these long-term follow-up data suggest that some patients may be cured with immune checkpoint blockade alone. For patients who achieved CR, the response was durable at approximately four years of follow-up without any consolidative stem cell transplant or additional therapy. She said that's a remarkable achievement in a heavily pretreated cohort of patients. Another key message is that PRs convert to CRs over time. That suggests patients who initially achieve PR should remain on pembrolizumab with close observation. The patients with primary refractory disease had a lower ORR, suggesting that this high-risk subset of patients may need additional therapy beyond single-agent pembrolizumab. She describes the safety profile as reassuring, but stipulates that larger studies are needed to flesh out the AE profile. So what's next for checkpoint inhibitors in PMBCL? The final results of Keynote 170 firmly establish the role of checkpoint inhibitors as a third-line therapy, and this paves the way for studies earlier in the disease course. More specifically, nivolumab is currently being evaluated in a randomized phase 3 trial in patients with previously untreated PMBCL. Patients in the study receive standard chemoimmunotherapy with or without nivolumab. This study is currently enrolling and will help define the role of checkpoint inhibitors in the frontline treatment of this disease. The next research article is titled Allogeneic donor-derived second-generation CD19 CAR T-cells for the treatment of pediatric relapsed refractory BCP-ALL. The first author is Francesca del Buffalo of Bambino Gesù Children's Hospital in Rome, Italy. The use of chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, or CAR T-cells, targeting the CD19 antigen have been revolutionary in the treatment of young patients with relapsed or refractory B-cell precursor ALL. However, this approach is not without hurdles. 
For some patients, the autologous approach isn't feasible due to profound lymphopenia or rapidly progressive disease that needs to be treated quickly. One way to overcome these challenges may be the use of allogeneic CAR T-cells from a donor. The allogeneic approach can provide a large quantity of healthy T-cells, never before exposed to chemotherapy or corticosteroids, which may enhance their functionality. This approach also removes the risks of contaminating the product with leukemia blasts. However, the alloreactive components of donor T-cells could increase the incidence of potentially fatal graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, which is the main limitation to the use of allogeneic CAR T-cells. The current research article describes the author's experience with allogeneic CAR T-cells for the treatment of pediatric patients with relapsed or refractory B-cell precursor ALL. They used donor-derived T-cells transduced with second-generation 4.1BB CD19 CAR and tested two different constructs. First, they tested a retroviral construct incorporating an inducible suicide gene, caspase 9 produced using a manual CAR T-cell manufacturing process in three patients. Next, they tested a lentiviral construct using an automated CAR T manufacturing process in the remaining 10 patients. So the investigators report on a total of 13 patients, most with relapse after hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Two of the patients received the treatment prior to allogeneic HSCT. All 13 patients achieved a complete remission with minimal residual disease negativity in the bone marrow. And as of this report, eight of the 13 patients were still in complete remission at follow-ups, ranging from 5 to 21 months, with a median follow-up of 12 months. The study is too small to tell whether the type of construct made a difference in terms of treatment response, particularly since every patient had a complete remission. Treatment-related toxicity was similar to what one might expect from autologous CAR T-cells. Namely, some patients had cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, and some had immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, or ICANS. Ten of the 13 patients experienced CRS, and all of which were grade 1 in severity. The incidence and severity of CRS didn't appear to be influenced by the type of CAR-T construct used, that is to say, the retroviral or lentiviral construct. There was one case of grade 2 ICANS that was transient and resolved without intervention. One case of acute GVHD was reported. The GVHD was treated with corticosteroids and ruxolitinib, resulting in rapid control. And in the two patients who received allogeneic CAR T-cells prior to HSCT, there was a significant expansion of CAR T-cells and no signs of GVHD. In a commentary, Peter Bader of University Children's Hospital Frankfurt in Germany said this study positions allogeneic CAR T-cells as a, quote, alternative route to cure, unquote. Bader calls it remarkable that allogeneic CAR T-cells were not only effective, but that this did not come at the cost of safety. There was no increased toxicity, he says, and no increased risk of severe GVHD as compared to studies of autologous CAR T-cell therapy. This alternative route to cure is promising not only for patients who lack sufficient T-cells for the autologous approach, but also patients who relapse early after allogeneic transplantation, according to Bader. In these patients, he says, the allogeneic approach may contribute to successful transduction, in vivo proliferation, expansion, and function of the T-cells. There are some potential downsides, though. No severe CRS or neurotoxicity was reported in this study, 
However, donor T-cells may theoretically increase the risk of these adverse events. And there was just one case of GVHD that was controllable with immunosuppressive therapy. However, the risk of severe or life-threatening GVHD also remains a concern due to the presence of alloreactive T-cells in the CAR product. Altogether, the findings for these allogeneic CAR T-cells are important and compelling, according to Bader, but this approach needs to be further evaluated in a perspective-controlled, multi-center study. The final article is titled, Fetal Factors Disrupt Placental and Maternal Iron Homeostasis in Murine Beta-Thalassemia. The first author is Yang Yu of the University of Florida in Gainesville. Beta-thalassemia is an inherited anemia caused by impaired production of beta-globin chains. Beta-thalassemia major is characterized by a severe transfusion-dependent anemia due to little or no production of beta-globin chains. By contrast, beta-thalassemia intermedia has a variable severity of anemia depending on the specific mutation and amount of beta-globin chain produced. One feature beta-thalassemia major and beta-thalassemia intermedia have in common is iron overload. This complication stems from high erythropoietic demand and decreased production of hepcidin, a liver-derived hormone that regulates iron concentrations in the blood. Iron load is heavily enhanced by transfusion in beta-thalassemia major and by gastrointestinal absorption in beta-thalassemia intermedia. Regardless of subtype, beta-thalassemia has potentially serious impacts on gestation. Pregnant women with beta-thalassemia may experience cardiac issues, liver problems, and endocrinopathies, along with increased risk of infection and thrombosis. This is an increasingly important issue to consider because pregnancy rates among women with beta-thalassemia are on the rise. That's largely due to recent clinical advances that have prolonged life expectancy and improved quality of life. As a result, there are more women with beta-thalassemia that are choosing to have children. However, patients with both transfusion and non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia may experience complications during pregnancy, including cardiac and liver issues, increased risk of thrombosis and infection, endocrinopathies, and medication side effects. A better understanding of how pregnancy affects both mother and fetus in beta-thalassemia, particularly for iron homeostasis, might be leveraged to improve both iron overload management and mitigate complications of pregnancy. Toward that end, you and co-authors examined maternal, placental, and fetal iron metabolism in a mouse model of beta-thalassemia intermedia with pathological features comparable to the human disorder. In this mouse model, termed TH3+, mice are heterozygous for deletion of the two main murine beta-globin genes, HBB1 and HBB2, which are expressed as an apparent single hemoglobin throughout gestational development and post-parturation. As is true for human beta-thalassemia, these thalassemic mice are characterized by low hepcidin, high iron absorption, and tissue iron overload with concurrent anemia. They hypothesized that thalassemic mothers would influence iron homeostasis in fetuses and that thalassemic fetuses would influence maternal iron homeostasis. The experiments they described in the current issue of blood do support that hypothesis. Further, investigators say their experiments also revealed unexpected pathophysiological outcomes that could have implications for thalassemic pregnancy in humans. They looked at three experimental groups, wild-type mothers carrying wild-type fetuses, 
wild-type mothers carrying both wild-type and thalassemic fetuses, and thalassemic mothers with both wild-type and thalassemic fetuses. They also included a control group of age-matched, non-pregnant adult female mice. Notable outcomes included alterations in intestinal iron absorption and tissue distribution when comparing WT and TH3 plus dams, influences of thalassemic dams on fetuses of either genotype, and influences of beta-thalassemia fetuses on maternal and WT fetus iron homeostasis. Compared to normal mothers, the mothers with beta-thalassemia experienced excess levels of iron in their blood, along with high fetal and placental iron loading. This was associated with growth restriction of the fetus and placental enlargement. The impaired fetal growth may be explained by hypoxia and iron-related oxidative stress, according to authors, and the placentomegaly may be due to enhanced placental erythropoiesis. The increased iron loading in the TH3 plus model appeared to occur very early in the pregnancy. Interestingly, wild-type mothers carrying TH3 plus fetuses had elevation of serum iron to levels that were similar to that of thalassemic mothers. Also, in wild-type mothers carrying both wild-type and TH3 plus fetuses, tissue iron was increased in the wild-type fetuses as well. Thus, TH3 plus fetuses altered maternal iron distribution which then is believed to have increased the iron loading of WT fetuses. But investigators paid particular attention to the situation where thalassemic mothers were carrying wild-type fetuses. They said that scenario more closely reflects the situation seen most often in human beta-thalassemia, where mothers are thalassemic and fetuses are relatively normal. In the TH3 plus model, wild-type fetuses had significant iron loading and reduced intrauterine growth. The authors linked these outcomes to maternal iron-induced changes in the levels of fetal hepcidin in the liver and ferroportin in the placenta. In a commentary, Jillian Simenow and Yatrick M. Shaw of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor say this research article is unique. That's because it details investigations into the pathophysiology of iron balance that have not previously been reported in medical literature. Further, these experimental findings provide novel and testable hypotheses that relate to thalassemic pregnancy in humans. It is clear that new clinical strategies to mitigate the risks of complications during pregnancy that are associated with beta-thalassemia are needed. However, any future interventions will have to take into account that the iron loading in the fetus of a TH3 plus mother appears to occur in early pregnancy, and interventions such as the administration of iron chelating drugs is discouraged during early pregnancy due to the risk of teratogenicity. Simino and Shaw add that more research is needed to explore the impact that fetuses with beta-thalassemia intermedia have on wild-type mothers, as well as the reverse situation. In addition, the presentation of beta-thalassemia intermedia is heterogeneous. That increases the need for studies to determine whether or not these insights apply to all patients with this blood disorder. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.